So we've been back from Panama for almost two weeks now. And uh, I'll tell you, yesterday felt a whole lot like we were still there. And that's what it was like every single day. Wake up in the morning, go outside, and welcome to the sauna. And uh, it was a beautiful time. And what we're going to do over the next three weeks is a few of our team members each week are going to be able to come up and share a little bit of that story, a little bit of how God worked in their own lives and how God worked throughout the lives of others as we were there. And I just want to start off by giving an overall, kind of an overall feel from how the team left. And each night during our debriefing times, we talked, each person shared, how is God working in my life today? And how is God working in others today that we got to encounter? And then the culmination of this came off in, uh, in a last night's discussion going, so what do we take away? What do we see here, big picture, from the entire nine days that we were there? And the big theme that everybody said is, the bigness of God. He's bigger than I ever imagined. And now I can kind of see that a little bit. And how we, how we are able to see that is one small story from one small day I'll share. That we had an opportunity on one of the days to take 50 or so orphans out on an excursion. And they range from ages 1 to 18. And ultimately in this orphanage, uh, this couple who basically takes care of all of them, they don't have an opportunity to go out too often. They're pretty restricted. And there was a church group, a small group, who came on a short-term mission trip over winter. And that short-term mission trip just fell in love with this orphanage and these kids. And so when they found out that we from Faith Church were sending a group down there, they had an idea. And they contacted our missionary partner, John, down there and said, hey, we've got an idea. That orphanage who doesn't get to go out ever, what if we pay for an outing if this team from Faith Church is willing to, to make it come to fruition. And so that's what happened. This little church in Pittsburgh area of 30 to 40 people or so who just fell in love with this orphanage donated about $2,000 so that they could rent out a trampoline park for a day and feed everybody with the understanding that it was up to this team to see that through and to care and love on those kids for that afternoon. And so we look at that one story and say, wow, what a big God we have that sends a team from Manitowoc to connect with an orphanage in Panama in which a team and a church from Pittsburgh pays for the whole thing. And yet, he's working that everywhere in between. He's working there, he's working here, and all over. And that's just one day down there. And I'm going to let these guys share a little bit more about some of their experiences as well. Thanks, Brian. Hola. I learned that word in Panama, so... If you go, you can learn some Spanish, too. Um, my name is Misha. I was one of the leaders, um, the only female leader on the trip. Um, so it was an amazing time. And as Brian said, I'm just going to share briefly here one of the main motifs that really stood out to me. And that was that, kind of as you were saying, I mean, we're all probably going to reiterate a lot here, but the gospel spans nations. And that was amazing to see. And in particularly, I saw that in the life of one individual named Moises. And I'm going to share a little bit about him once a picture of him pops up. Oh, there he is, in the white shirt with the red sleeves. So he was the pastor of a community um, of Ladise, which is a pretty small, poor community, about 45 minutes out of Panama City. And his church had about 25 individuals in it. And one thing that we really were able to do is support him. Um, and one way we were able to do that is we went into uh, a school in Ladise and we're able to teach them some English words, just kind of have some fun sort of on his behalf and, and saying, here, we're with Pastor Moises and he's with the local church. 
And then about 600 students were uh, able to hear the gospel for what might have been the first time in their lives. So that was amazing to see. But what I want to point out is that ultimately it's going to be Pastor Moises that's going to be the connection for these kids. And they may or may not have made a decision for Christ and when they heard the gospel. But they now have somebody that they can go to for answers and support and somebody that will just show them the love of Christ. Um, so you guys can be praying for Pastor Moises. And I really just wanted to share that. And I have a verse that sort of uh, supports that. It is Philippians 1, 3 through 6. I thank, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because your partnership in the gospel, uh, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, we can, we can be praying for that, for that community. Uh, so my name is Zach Getz, and I was always a part of this mission team. And like one day or incident that stuck out to me was the day that we worked at a, at a school to teach English to some kids. Uh, and what was really cool about it was like one of the leaders on our team, his name is Ariel. He was like a younger man, lives in Panama, but like just his passion for the Lord and for sharing the gospel was really inspiring. It was cool to see like, even though I couldn't understand what he was saying while he was preaching the gospel, it was cool to see like how tuned in the kids were. And it just like helped reinforce that God is working everywhere, not just here in Manitoba. Thank you. Hello, my name is Gretchen Henry. Um, so I have an experience kind of like after Panama. Right when we got back, I was kind of like, you know, like that af after like missions trip like era where you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? So I kind of had a couple of breakdowns. I was like. I don't know what to do here. I feel kind of helpless. I feel like I can't do anything. Um, I miss everyone in Panama. Like, what is going on, right? Um, but I was talking to one of our leaders, and he kind of reminded me that even when we're here in Manitowoc, we can still love and support the team that's in Panama. So our mission trip to Panama does not end right when we get home. It continues on as long as we keep that relationship with them and we um, keep praying for them and keep supporting them. And um, there's other missionary teams that are going to be there, too, to, like, build the people that are there and the people that we met and the people that we love. So that was really cool to see and really cool to um, connect with the other leader about that because our missions trip doesn't stop. It's still going. So. You know, for as much of a buildup as there was for this trip, it's over a year of building relationships and connecting on, on this. And uh, before we left, I I had shared with some people, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic because I have a vision of how this is going to go, but you don't know until you get there. Um, I've had some face time with these people and, and some ability to connect, but you just don't know. And this is one that I can come back and say that uh, the trip, the people, uh, the opportunities there have exceeded my expectations. And uh, as you can tell, the relationships were, were built so quick and so fast. Um, and we were thankful for that. And we're thankful for the prayer support that we had the entire time lifting us up uh, from this body and from many others. And we're also thankful for the financial support that we were able to be able to get down there. So let me pray over Panama and all those who are still there. Father, I thank you for this sending church, for the opportunity that you've called us to join that team in, mi in mission in Panama. 
And although we're not there anymore, our brothers and sisters are still there ministering. And we lift them up to you today. I ask you to comfort them and, and give them the endurance and the courage to continue. And uh, for Pastor Moises and, and for the missionaries that we met and, and Pastor Cesar and Ruth and Carmen who are working with the kids and, and the DSA, we just lift them all to you. And we, we trust that you will take care of them. And we just look forward to the day we'll meet them again. In Jesus' name, amen. We are educated beyond obedience. That's how we started our conversation. We sat across my kitchen table week after week. And this week started a little different. As you kind of pondered, we're educated beyond our obedience. And as I was still rumbling through my head going, what are you talking about? I think we were in the Gospel of Luke. I don't remember that in there. And he's still kind of repeating it and just staring up. This guy who'd been discipling me for a while. And so I start to ask, we? Who's we? When you say we, are you, are you talking we? Or is this, a, is this you? Or is this bigger picture we? Is this the church we? Small group we? What is this? And what does this mean that we're educated beyond our obedience? And we began to wrestle with this thought of we seem to have a lot of knowledge of what this thing says. But are we doing it? Is this a Bible that's supposed to be read or is it a Bible that's supposed to be done? And that question that he posed to me years ago has never left my mind. And I always come back to it. And I want to caution, I'm not saying knowledge is bad. And certainly, reading your Bible is a good thing. But the caution is, what do we do with that fear that comes in of not knowing enough? You know, one of the most common phrases or common things that I hear when people don't want to engage with teens in student ministry, it's not so much that they're scared of the teens, some are, but the majority, they're like, ah, we can figure them out. Like, what if, I don't think I know enough. I don't think I have all the answers. I mean, they have some pretty good questions. It's that fear of the unknown and fear of not knowing that continues to drive them. And my reiteration usually is, you love the Lord? You like kids? You'll be fine. We can wrestle through this thing together. There's always a great line that says, hey, let's look it up together. But this knowledge thing and this obedience thing gets in the way. And we're going to dive into the book of James over the next three weeks. And James has this whole idea, and he's writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ to say, we've got an obedience problem to our education, that we are educated beyond obedience. Let's turn to James and see what he says. Now, if you guys are going to be turning with me, I'll give you a quick insight. Only about 30 pages from the back. So your best bet is start from the back. You'll hit Revelations, a couple two, three Johns, a couple Peters, then we'll be in James. And we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 12. And James says that we are supposed to have a faith that is seen and heard, not a faith that's supposed to be kept inside. But our faith should be visible, and it should be auditory. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. What does this mean? We are going to wrestle with this verse 
over the next three weeks. So if we're going to be judged by this law of liberty, if we're going to come to the judgment seat of Christ someday, what are we judged on? It tells us here, based on our speech and our actions. So today we're going to cover the judgment part. What does this mean? The next two weeks we're going to hit the speaking part and the actions part. Now I've had a lot of recent conversations with some guys and they follow a typical pattern of conversation. And after we go over the weather and you know things about how hot it is, we can start getting down to some meteor stuff. And at some point, faith is going to come up. And then at some point, every now and then, I'll throw that one question out there. Something in effect of, you maybe have heard, well, if you die today, where are you going? Or as I sometimes like to refer, a little different twist on that, but yeah, I plan on being with Jesus someday. What about you? Am I going to see you there? You know, if I go before, can I expect to see you and welcome you in? And oftentimes I get the very same response. Hmm. It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I'm not perfect by any means, but I try to do good. I'm kind most of the time. I, I care for people most times. Like, I think my good outweighs my bad, so I should be good, right? Well, I think that's a common sentiment among our nation. Barna Research publishes something called the State of the Church every year, and it kind of takes a poll, where are we at as a nation? And one of the recent polls says, first part is, kind of encouraged, 73% of people say they're Christian. It's like, probably higher than I would have given it in our American culture. Well, second note on that one is 31% of people say that they're practicing Christians, which means you attend church once a month. So I get it. It's July 1st. I don't want to see you again until August. We don't have to check the box of practicing Christians. We can come more than once a week and fulfill that gap. But there's another question that continues in that same research that I think is even more important. And they ask respondents, Give me one of four responses. You strongly agree, you somewhat agree, you somewhat disagree, or you strongly disagree. So see where you would line on this one. Here's a statement. Good works result in going to heaven. Your good works result in you going to heaven. Where do you stand on that one? Well, if you're like the majority of Americans, 25% strongly agree, 30% agree somewhat. Another 14% or so are like, "Mm, somewhat disagree to that, but I'm not sure. So almost three-quarters of Americans are saying, yeah, I think good works is how we get into heaven. I think that's how I earn my ticket. I think that's how I get into the big show. And yet so many people are misguided. And I think a big part of that is due to James, because of misinterpretations of James. So before we continue, we've got to wrestle with that idea. And I'm going to put it out there now. It says, deeds do not impact eternal salvation. What we do, our works, our deeds, don't have a bearing on whether or not we punch our ticket in. In verse 14 in chapter 2 is where some people will start to get this confused. So let's wrestle with this one. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? So that's the question. Can that faith save him if he doesn't have works? 
So the quick answer is, can faith save somebody? Yeah, absolutely. Faith saves somebody. That's how we get saved. But what does save mean in James? That's where the clarifier needs to come in. Five times in this book of James, that word is used. Zero times does it have any impact on eternal salvation. In the Old Testament, throughout the entire books, when saved is used, no times is it referring to eternal salvation. In the New Testament, in all the times that it's used, less than half, 40% of the time, that saved is talking about eternal salvation. But we use saved as a common language to say, we're saved, we're going to heaven. But that's not always how the Bible takes it. And that's where some of the big differences are. So what is it talking about when it says saved? Almost all the times in the Old Testament, it's talking about saved from a death, a physical death, a physical impairment, a disease. We're saved from that. We're healed from that. In the New Testament, it continues to go on. Oftentimes, it's talking about being saved from a struggle from sin. So our sin has consequence. If we can stop the sin, we're saved from the consequences of that sin. And in the book of James, what are we being saved from? What do our works save us from? That'd be a negative judgment at the seat of Christ. Because someday we will meet Jesus, and he will give us a judgment. But that doesn't mean it's a judgment on whether or not we get in or we go out. So what does save us? Well, we're going to stay in James the majority of the time. Let's flip to Ephesians. If you want to, you can move a few books back to chapter 2. Otherwise, this one will be up on the screen as well. And we're going to spend some time in Ephesians with 8 and 9. Keep a thumb there. Keep a bookmark there. We'll flip back to that one more time throughout. So verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, an acronym that I like to think of to help me remember what does grace mean? God's riches at Christ's expense. God gives us this blessing that Jesus ultimately took on for us. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Gifts are free. When people give you a gift, there's no cost to that. All we have to do is receive it. Not as a result of works. Not as a result of deeds. Not as a result of anything we could do so that no one may boast. So that we can't go, Woohoo! look at me. Look what I did. Look what I've accomplished. Because it's not about anything that we've ever done. It's all about what Jesus has done. We can't earn our way into heaven. It's simply in our belief that Jesus went to the cross for our sins. That he covered them all, past, present, and future. That he went to the grave three days again. He rose, said, told you so. Now come on, put your faith in me. And you can have your eternal ticket also. You know, there's one story, it's not going to be up here, I'll just read it that always comes to mind with me when I hear this works debate, where people think that you need to earn your way into heaven, when people think it's all about good outweighing the bad. And I go to the cross again. It's a cross that saves, and it's a cross that gives us an indicator on this one. Luke 23, verse 39. So as Jesus is hanging there, there's two other criminals with him. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, this at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal answered and rebuking him said, 
Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Imagine that, that faith. I know where you're going. I believe that. Now remember me. And Jesus' response, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise, just as we all will if we put our belief in him. This man didn't have a good that outweighed a bad. He was the first one to admit, I've done wrong, and this is exactly what we deserve. This is exactly what I deserve. This is what we all deserve. But it's Jesus that gives us that blessing, and he gives us that gift that says, believe in me, I've got this covered. But James writes this letter to people who understand this idea. So for all of us who say we are Christians, we believe that, that is who he's writing the letter to. The people who understand who Jesus is. And his expectation for them is that they live out their faith. He wants them to live it out and not keep it to themselves. And here's an example that James uses in verses 15 to 17 on how to live this faith out. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So James has kind of given us this idea that sometimes is common. Hey, let me pray for you. Hey, I know you're really struggling right now. I know you don't have food. I know you're hungry. So let me pray for you. And now that doesn't mean that prayer is not a great starting point. And I'm not knocking it by any means. That should be a good starting point. But a better instance that he would say, how about taking that person to eat and praying with them? How about letting our faith and our deeds collide and living it out and taking it one step further? Letting our actions speak as we tie those two things together. And faith without deeds is dead, he says. It's not beneficial. It's not beneficial to us. When we are without deeds, we are breaking that relationship with God. We are breaking that obedience. We aren't growing in our relationship with Christ when we're not following in obedience. It's not beneficial to the recipient. Those who are hungry, they're not getting anything from it. It's not beneficial to them. And ultimately, it's not beneficial when we're going to be at the judgment seat someday before Christ. In verse 20, instead of that word dead, faith without works is dead, he calls it useless. In other translations, there's a couple other words that are like idle. Do you ever think of a car that's idle? Well, it's working. It's still a car. It's just not going anywhere. It's not doing anything. It also refers to it as lazy in some other translations. That the faith is lazy if it's not lived out, if it's not doing anything. Unemployed is another one. Maybe a skill set there just not being utilized. I had a keyboard once that was like that. Useless. I had an iPad, still do I guess, and I was finding that this typing method wasn't very efficient. And I'm like, what a novel idea if I could actually type on this thing and it would go a lot faster. So I started looking online. And uh, seemingly these things are a little more costly than I thought. So I started checking out the used market and uh, some of those auction sites. And I found one 
and it was a fraction of the cost. The details of it were like near mint condition, it works phenomenal, all sorts of you know, great words to describe it. So I'm like, perfect, fraction of the cost, buy it. I get it. And I'm like, okay, now I gotta sync it, so I'm following some directions, push power. Push power, you ever get one of those things that's powered up and you typically think like a green light's gonna come on and when it like flashes red, that's probably something else that's going on. So I start to flip through and it's like, the, see some of the manual stuff and it's like, oh, you need to charge it. Need to charge it? Open up the box? There's no charger? I was assuming that this thing came with batteries or something like that. I'm just gonna swap out a couple double A's. I'm like, well, there's no charger. So I get back online, not on this way, but this way, and I'm typing to the guy that I bought it from. I said, hey, must have overlooked it. There's no charger in the box. So this thing's useless. I, I can't use it without the charger. And uh, I got a quick response back, which I was thankful for. I'm like, oh, all right. And his response was, yep, it wasn't being sold with the charger. What? And uh, so I responded back and I said, you understand that this thing doesn't work without a charger, that it is useless, it is dead. It has no value to me without a charger. And his response was, I never advertised that it had a charger. Therefore, there's none required. So I'm like, all right, this guy and we're not on equal wavelengths. How can I illustrate this point to make it? Because clearly he needs to see my side of this. So I'm like, what if, type back to him, in this scenario, which I seem to be on parallel, if you bought a vehicle from me and I advertised it as great condition, pretty much new, runs great, and you say, great, I'm gonna buy it. And then you buy it and you come over, you turn the key and you're like, it doesn't work. What's going on? Pop the hood and there's no engine. I'm like, then what would you think? Because that is about the exact equivalent as this keyboard is to me right now. And he didn't agree with that illustration. <laughs> so I brought that illustration to the wholesale company or the, the company that was managing the website. I said, here's the deal. Uh, they can see all the dialogue back and forth. I said, uh, if you follow the tread, you'll understand that I've got this keyboard that is absolutely useless without the power cord, but uh, we have a disconnect on whether or not that is uh, something that he should be including or at least taking this back paying for it or getting a, a power cord and much to my surprise they saw it his way and so now i start to get this idea going i think i need to start getting in the business of selling cars online because i'm going to take out a bunch of engines and i'm going to be making money on this stuff <laughs> and that keyboard remained useless to me until i went out and bought another power cord until we got a charge into it and so we got a little zest into that keyboard again. And then it had its value and its purpose was being fulfilled. So what's our purpose? And how do we fulfill that? I'm gonna say, let's tie back into that Ephesians bookmark that you noted. And I love the line that comes right after verses eight and nine, right after where we understand that it's not by anything we could do to get our ticket in, it's by what Jesus did. And verse 10 follows up. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what he created us to do. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God's got this plan for our lives. And it's not to keep our faith in here. And it's not to develop it passively. But it's to be active and to have it be lived out. And now I think, well, if James is writing this to the to the Christians then, if he's writing it to the churches in the first century, 
what was their hiccup? Why weren't they in line with this faith and living it out and having works to go along with it? What was their catch? I started thinking, what's ours? So if you were writing this today to us, would this same idea fit? What gets in the way of living it out? And I think of our time in Panama. And real quickly, we had to learn there's a divide in two things. One is American time. One is called Panamanian time. And those two things are not the same. For example, when church came around at 10 o'clock on Sunday, I'm like, okay, we got to be ready. It's, it's 10 o'clock. So I just asked him, said, I, I've got this thing down now. We've been here about a week. What time does that actually mean we start? Mm, probably 1030. Okay, got it. It was after 11 before we got this thing rolling. So we got to understand that things ultimately come a little bit differently. But that's our society and how we're different. And I think we run at such a pace that we could easily say, why aren't our faith and works working together? Well, it's because we're busy. It's because we do have that clock. Because we're going to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And we don't enjoy Panamanian time of relating with one another as they do. Too busy for what? Too busy because of what? Well, we've got a big mortgage, we've got a big car payment, we've got a lot of stuff we need, so we have to work really hard and we have to work long and we have to work overtime so that we, we can keep up. Because our neighbors have it, so, so should I. Or, anybody with kids? Anybody know the opportunities that they have now? Oh, well, let's get them in t-ball and jazzercise and band and let's make sure that we're going to 4-H and Girl Scouts and gymnastics and swimming and if we didn't do all that in this week, we are bad parents. Because everything says that we need to make sure that they're involved in everything possible, otherwise we're not giving them the opportunities that they desire and that they need and so that way they can grow and develop into successful adults. Because it's all those things that are gonna matter. So we spend our days being busy. Or maybe, maybe we need this because we're comfortable. Maybe we've gotten comfortable in our lifestyle. Maybe we've gotten comfortable and we're riding an easy street. And so any deviation from that is gonna start to feel not so good. However, I've also learned that it's outside of our comfort zone that God really works if we're willing to go there. You know, we've, we've made it this thing where God hasn't become the thing anymore. He's just become a thing. Sometimes that happens when we forgot our time coming to Christ. You guys ever experienced somebody who just got to know the Lord for the first time? They're on fire. They are contagious to be around, and it is awesome. And then over time, sometimes we lose that fire, and we need a little kindling, and we need a little spark to keep us going in the right direction. And that's what James is challenging us to do. Let's get that spark, and let's rekindle. Because ultimately, there's a math equation that he wants us to follow. And it's faith plus works is God's intent for our lives. It's faith plus works, those two things together. Saying, you have faith? Good. That's great. I'll see you. But let's do something while we're doing that. Let's make a life of that. Let's live it out. And certainly, he has some objectors on this. He has people that are going to argue with him on every point. I get that. And so he's going to take on the argument in the next two verses. People would say, you don't need faith plus works. They can be separate. So he takes on this objection and just says, here it is. Here's what people will, may say to us if we're saying that you need them together. 
verses 18 and 19. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. So here's the objection. Here's what James is hearing. And he gives this example that because the demons believe, James, you believe, and the demons believe, but you're living a life of works, and they're not. So that way, it doesn't have to be together. And he responds, and I love in verse 20, he's just like, you fool. You're really going to use that? You're going to say that it's the demons that they actually believe, that they have a faith in Jesus? That's a saving faith that they're going to now turn? No, they don't put their faith, they don't believe in Jesus. That point is moot. So we get to hear how James rebuts that. And I love how he takes on one of the great patriarchs. Everybody knows Abraham, and everybody understands that he was a man of faith. And everybody knows the stories. So he goes there. In verse 20, But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac at the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. Faith plus works. And the result of that works, faith was perfected. That's God's intent. Those two things work together. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. But it's those two things that work together. So let's flip the coin on that. So we've been talking about faith coming out, and we're seeing works, and that's together. Let's hear an example about, well, let's look at deeds then. So I think of crisis response. Last year, it was all over the place. Hurricanes. They ravished Texas. They hit Florida. They hit Puerto Rico. And what's the response? Churches across the country. Churches from Wisconsin. Packing up U-Hauls, packing up trucks, clothing, food, water, doing whatever they can and bringing it down there. That's the response. That's the deed. Just in the same way, there are secular organizations that rally the troops. They get water. They get food. They get trucks. They get people and go down there to help. That's their desire, too, to help. And they're faced, these two camps, when they get down there with hurting people, people without food, people without water, people who have been displaced, may not know where their families are, have no idea about when they're ever going to get back to their homes, and they're in need. So these two camps go and bring stuff. Well, what's behind that stuff? In one, there's faith working together with their deeds. And I would say that's an opportune time when you deliver, as James said earlier, with the food, with the water, not just saying, hey, go be well fed. When you're bringing the stuff, what an opportunity for those groups in the Christian camp to bring Jesus with them. What an opportunity to go into a school and play games so that we can teach English so that way they can hear the gospel message. Because when we bring Jesus to a hurting people, they're more welcome to be receptive of him and of his salvation. But it's faith and works that come together that make that a fruitful experience. Not just separate, but when they're working together.
There's another example that, I don't know if it's a pet peeve of mine, but it's something along those lines. That if you ever had somebody, for example, let's say they're going in for surgery, and so they'll post a picture on Instagram or Facebook or something like that, and uh, they, they start to get these well wishes underneath. Um, and I love reading those a lot of times and somewhat humored by it, somewhat not sure how to take them. Because oftentimes I feel like they're filled up with, hey, thinking of you, my thoughts are with you. Or one of my favorites, good vibes sending your way, sending these good vibes your way. And I think, man, if I'm ever in that position, I don't want your thoughts or your good vibes. That just freaks me out. What I want is your prayers, because that can do something. And you know what? If you're going to use that faith, attach some deeds. Go to my house. See how my wife and kids are doing. Cut my lawn. Bring me some ice cream or a bacon cheeseburger or something like that. But let's do something with that. Because Jesus is the answer. And if we just send our well wishes and our good thoughts and our vibes, whatever that may mean, yeah, we're missing a boat on something. However, I'll probably find it kind of humorous if everybody shows up and starts doing this to me. And, you know, <laughs> send them all away, whatever it is. And James closes with verse 26 and wraps it all up. He says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And it doesn't mean the faith is non-existent. It doesn't mean we still don't have an eternal salvation. What it means is it's not beneficial to anybody, to you, to other people, to your day at the judgment seat. But I want to throw one caution out there. Let's not become the judge. We've already got one. We don't need to be looking at other people and saying, I see your deeds, so now I can tell your faith. Let's let Jesus do that. Because ultimately, we can look at a new Christian, somebody who's just come to the Lord, and they aren't educated beyond obedience. And we can start condemning them when they don't know what's going on. They haven't read the book. They're coming along. What we can do is come alongside with them, take them out for a meal, and pray with them. James is talking to people like us. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to his brothers and sisters. And he gives us a warning shot in chapter 5, verse 5. And here's something that is this idea of education beyond obedience continues to be in the back of my head throughout these years that this is a verse that scares me this is a verse that I don't want to hear from Jesus when I'm judged verse 5 of chapter 5 you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That doesn't sound like it'll be a good judgment for living the easy life here on earth, not getting out of our comfort zones, and we're just continuing to absorb, 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 and fatten our hearts with knowledge when that doesn't come out in obedience. So there's one final thought, one final question I have that I think maybe wraps this up. So if you were given a task as you leave here, you have two options. We are going to start a brand new study, 12-week study, once a week. It's a deep biblical study. Sign up and registration is out the right door. 
or out the left door. We've got a 12-week opportunity where each week we're going to go in our community, we're going to serve the poor, the homeless, the down on their luck, the sick, the hungry. I just wonder, what door would James walk out of? The right or the left? What door would you walk out of? The right or the left? Father, I thank you. I thank you that this idea of education and being educated beyond my obedience continues to, to be a thorn in my side. I thank you for this book that James crafted to, to challenge us with this and that we be a people that live our faith and our works together that we be a people that are on fire and active and not passive that we are a people where our faith is lived out and Father I thank you that we've got a body of believers that come together every Sunday hopefully more than once a month as the practicing Christians are. May you encourage each of us that we live it out each and every day and catch a fire and remain on fire for you. Not just on Sunday, but all the days in between. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.